it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, the 2nd of June, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you here each and every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, around the clock, on demand, for free on our podcast, which is really growing big time. We are grateful. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. One-stop shop there. Lots of ways to listen live. And again, if you can't listen live, the podcast is free right there. GuyBensonShow.com. At GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. Here's the lineup today. Former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo joining us later this hour. Miranda Devine on the Durham investigation coming up in the next hour, as is Charles C.W. Cook on the Second Amendment and a history lesson there for progressives who are distorting the historical and constitutional record. I think that's important if we're going to have serious, accurate, honest conversations about guns. And then Larry Kudlow in our final hour. He'll get off the air on TV. Come join us on radio talking about the economy, inflation, the Biden plan such as it exists, etc. But we begin with a story today that I find intriguing and odd. And I wrote about it today at townhall.com. And if you're intrigued like I am, you can go and read about it on the tip sheet. President Joe Biden has exhibited throughout his entire adult life a penchant It's almost, I might say, pathological to lie or embellish or exaggerate details about his life and his biography. Now, most politicians fib and exaggerate. That's a fact of life. And I'm not talking here about policy or political lies. We address those all the time. For instance, Joe Biden lies about his tax plan and the implications of what he wants to do on tax hikes. We correct the record. He's not telling the truth. He lied about Afghanistan and the conditions under which we would or would not withdraw all American troops. Those are consequential falsehoods. There are also political lies. For example, NBC News this week had a story that we discussed at length on the show about the chaos and divisions inside the White House And one minor detail was that Biden gets regularly, at least weekly, briefed on polling. And Biden had said publicly that he doesn't read the polls at all. He said, that's not a joke. Not a joke, folks. No, it's just a lie. Of course he reads the polls. He's actually obsessed over the polls if you read this NBC News story. Those are all, for better or for worse, I'm not defending them at all. We, you know, drill down on them here. Run of the mill common lies or shading of the truth or untruths or tall tales for political reasons that you see from various political actors on the regular, Republican, Democrat across the board. 
What I'm talking about here is different. It's particularly shameless. And I would say above all else, it's really weird. It's really weird how Joe Biden over and over and over again just makes things up about things that he has done in his life, things that have happened to him in his life, things that are just not true. What sparked this whole thought, which catalyzed the piece that I've written at townhall.com, sort of the kickoff to this, was over the long weekend, the president gave the commencement address at the Naval Academy. And at the very beginning of his speech, he told a quick anecdote about his own life and his own connection to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Cut 29, here's the very short snippet. I was appointed to the Academy in 1965 by a senator who I was running against in 1972. And he went on to tell this story about how he didn't end up going to Annapolis, but if he had, he would have been deployed and he couldn't have run against this senator in 1972. He wouldn't have won because he's been in Washington, most of it in the U.S. Senate, for decades, as we all know. And some political reporters who were watching the speech said, gosh, that's a story we haven't heard before. And maybe they didn't hear it before because it's not true. It can't be true. At the very least, Biden misremembered or confused the dates. It could not have been 1965. The terminology of being appointed to the Naval Academy, people have disputed that, saying, no, that is absolutely not what happened here. It's not stolen valor, but it's sort of adjacent to that. It's in the neighborhood. He went on to the University of Delaware instead, and he told that story. But he did not get appointed to the Naval Academy in 1965. It just didn't happen. Now, that might seem like a very small thing. It's certainly not the most important thing happening in America right now, but it feeds into this pattern. These serial embellishments or untruths from this man. Here are two more examples of quite a few. Some people might lie on the topic of getting arrested by lying that they did not get arrested in order to get a job or what have you. Joe Biden, on multiple occasions, has lied that he did get arrested when, in fact, he was not arrested. For example, he said several times that he was arrested with Nelson Mandela in apartheid South Africa. Here's an example, cut 30. This day, 30 years ago, Nelson Mandela walked out of prison and entered into discussions about apartheid. I had the great honor of meeting him. I had the great honor of being arrested with our U.N. ambassador on the streets of Soweto trying to get to see him on Robbins Island. Now, this is the story that he told on the campaign multiple times, that he got arrested while in South Africa visiting Mandela because he was down for the cause, Joe Biden. So some fact checkers looked into it. And the Washington Post called the claim ridiculous and gave him four Pinocchios. And eventually he had to back off saying, well, what I meant was I got briefly separated. Separated is not the same word as arrested. Obviously, we all understand that. He used the word arrested for extra emphasis and power, even though it wasn't true. In Cut 39, he also bragged that he was arrested during the civil rights movement in the United States. Listen. 
because I'm so damn old I was there as well. They think I'm kidding, man. Seems like yesterday, the first time I got arrested. Anyway. And he told that story a couple times. Got arrested during the civil rights era. Didn't happen. Four more Pinocchios. We're up to eight Pinocchios on these arrest stories from The Washington Post. Even PolitiFact, which is a Democrat-aligned fact checker, called that one false. Then the list goes on to pettier stuff. Biden talked about how much he enjoyed teaching when he was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. In fact, he was paid a million dollars for that position. He never taught a class. That one at least has some semblance of truth to it. Others, not so much. Biden said he was a truck driver professionally at one point in his life. Cut 33. I used to drive a tractor trailer. Oh, awesome. uh, And so I know a little bit about driving big trucks. No, that's great. But, um... Anyway, it's, uh, I only did it for part of a summer. Oh, but I got my license to do it. He did this job for part of a summer, got his license as a truck driver. Awesome, says the guy who's talking to. He's pushing an infrastructure package in this context. So he wants to say, like, he's around these blue-collar people. I was a truck driver. Oh, wow. There's no record that he was ever a truck driver. And asked for any specifics or details or proof, there has been none Offered. PolitiFact, again, left-leaning PolitiFact, called that claim false. Here's another strange one. Again, weird. You can call it shameless. You can call it pathological. I've used those adjectives as well. More than anything to me, it is weird. Biden was talking about Idaho and how he interviewed for his first job ever in Idaho, cut 34. I got a, I, my first job offer where I wanted, my wife, deceased wife and I wanted to move to Idaho because we think, not a joke, it's such a beautiful, beautiful state. And I interviewed for a job with Boise Cascade. He likes to say not a joke, which might be the tip off that whatever he's saying isn't true. Someone looked into this. They asked the company, which had to then put out a statement saying we have no record of President Biden And his application or of him having worked for the company. We checked the system internally, turned up nothing. On a more serious note, you might recall that in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in 2018, there was a horrible shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh. A bigot went in to kill as many Jews as he could. Subsequently, President Biden was talking about the time that he remembered going to visit the Tree of Life synagogue after that terrible event, cut 35. I remember spending time at, the, you know, uh, go, going to uh, the, uh, you know, the Tree of Life synagogue, speaking with them. It just, it just is amazing these things are happening. I remember spending time going to the Tree of Life synagogue. New York Post looked into it. The executive director of the synagogue said that Biden had not visited in the nearly three years since the anti-Semitic attack took place. So this story came out in 2021. They asked, are you sure? Was Biden ever here? Was he ever at this house of worship? And the executive director responded, quote, with a firm no. 
So there's an invented memory, or at least a story that he decided to tell. To, I guess, make things more emotional, connect more. The details being almost ancillary in terms of, like, the truthfulness of them. This one I find disconcerting. We know that Biden has grieved loved ones in his life. He has experienced traumatic loss. His son, Bo, before that, his first wife and his young daughter in an accident. There's no questioning that. That happened. That is real. He has drawn on that experience to comfort other people who were hurting. I think that's admirable. But for many years, Biden would tell the story about that accident with a villain, the truck driver who was involved. And he would say that the driver was drunk. That turned out to be absolutely false and incorrect. According to the police department, the police report, local officials, a judge weighed in saying, no, this was not a drunk driving situation. In fact, Biden's former wife accidentally drove into the path of the truck. It was a terrible accident. The guy was not drunk. There were no charges filed. But over and over again for years, Biden called the guy a drunk driver. And this man's family has been desperately asking him to stop. Stop tarnishing and smearing the legacy of our dad or husband or uncle, that sort of thing. But Biden said it over and over again for dramatic effect. Why do you have to embellish anything about something that sad already? Then there was, of course, the whole plagiarism scandal, which derailed Biden's first presidential run of three, 1988. He had plagiarized a British politician's speech, which then revealed that he had plagiarized a few other speeches while he was a politician. Then eventually he was forced to admit that he plagiarized pages worth of material when he was in law school. And the whole thing just sort of cascaded. He was very touchy about this. When people would bring it up, he angrily denied it until he couldn't anymore. And at one point, I don't know if you've ever seen this clip. It is wild. Someone asked him a question on the campaign trail about this and sort of suggested that maybe Joe Biden isn't that bright. And Biden bristled and got very, very defensive and went on this whole long rant about how smart he is and all the accolades academically that he had earned through the years. One after another. And it kind of sounds impressive. So first you'll hear Biden yelling at this guy about how smart he is. And then at the end of the clip, you will hear local and national news reports about the veracity of what Biden actually said in his boasting. Again, this clip, if you've never seen it, is absolutely amazing. Cut 37. I went to law school on a full academic scholarship, the only one in my in my class uh, to have a full academic scholarship. Went back to law school and, in fact, ended up in the top half of my class. I was the outstanding student in the political science department at the end of my year. I graduated with three degrees from undergraduate school and 165 credits, only 123 credits. Biden now concedes he did not graduate in the top half of his law school class that he does not have three degrees from college, and that he was not named outstanding political science student in college. Newsweek says Biden actually went to school on a half scholarship, ended up near the bottom of his class, and won only one degree, not three. Joe Biden ranked 76th in a class of 85 at the University of Syracuse Law School. Did he say a single thing that was true? 
mean, he was rattling them off like he had them memorized, all these great things he had done, and it was just top to bottom, start to finish, false, made up, wrong, which only deepened his problem. Repeatedly, serially through the years he has done this. And all it did was make him a mainstay in the U.S. Senate and then vice president of the United States and then president of the United States campaigning on a platform of truth compared to the last guy. Say what you will about Joe Biden or his policies. He should have never been taken seriously on the honesty front for just some of the reasons that we have just recapitulated for you. It is taken together amazing. And as I say, more than anything else, super Super weird. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thank you for listening. In my opening monologue, I was talking about all these examples of Biden lying or exaggerating or going way over the top with these fairy tales, tall tales about his life, his biography. The latest one was over the weekend at the Naval Academy. I just went back and tried to bring a bunch of them into one place and aggregate them at townhall.com today. And I went through a bunch of them with audio in the opening segment. I forgot this one. I'd forgotten about it completely. Biden at one point recently told a story while he was pushing the infrastructure bill that he once had his house burned down. That's a quote. And I know, quote, having had a house burned down with my wife in it, she got out safely, God willing, that having significant portion of it burn, I can tell you 10 minutes makes a hell of a difference. And he told a similar story back in 2013 that his house burned down and thank God Jill was able to get out. The Associated Press actually reported on the incident in 2004. There was a lightning strike. It started a, quote, small fire that was contained to the kitchen. House didn't burn down. Again, this is just so odd. Now, if he'd only lied about serving in Vietnam... Maybe that would cap his career. He could only be a senator from Connecticut. Or if he lied about being a Native American, he'd be limited to a Senate seat in Massachusetts. But he's dreamed a lot bigger. And now he's president. It's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have each of you here with us. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com. Well, President Biden had this event yesterday on the baby formula crisis. They keep flying in baby formula from overseas. And it's perfectly safe for U.S. consumers. It's used in Europe. It's used in the U.K., 
but because of this tangle of regulations, without these special, <clears throat> excuse me, special waivers, it's illegal to sell the stuff here. But now they're waiving it because of the crisis, and they keep bragging, oh, look, we're bringing in all these pallets of baby formula. Which suggests, number one, that they are way behind the curve on this. They're finally getting to this in May and June, when this was known to be a problem at the beginning of this year, months ago, with some of the precursors of the crisis seated even before that. And it also, I think, underscores the silliness of whatever the regulatory scheme is right now. If it's safe to bring in from Europe, where babies are safely consuming it over there, in an emergency, why do we have all this red tape to begin with? So I think it's actually making multiple points that they're flat-footed and slow and out of touch and the existing system was broken and they could have done this stuff far earlier. So there were a few exchanges yesterday that caught some folks' attention. For example, in Cut 40, Biden was talking about why they didn't act sooner. Just listen to this back and forth. Why didn't you act sooner? Um, well, I don't think anyone anticipated the impact of the shutdown of one facility uh, in, uh, uh, in the, the, the Abbott facility. And it was accurately shut down because it was the formula was questioned in terms of its, its purity. And so once we learned of the extent of it and how broad it was, we kicked everything into gear. And I think we're uh, I think we're on the way to be able to completely solve the problem. But but they 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 did the CEOs just tell you that they understood it would have a very big impact? They did, but I didn't. So he asks the question of himself, why didn't you act sooner? So he starts saying, well, you know, as soon as we figured out that this could be as bad as it was, then we started to kick things into gear and we might be getting close to finally solving the thing. Then the follow-up question was about the CEOs of these companies who knew how bad and significant this was from the get-go. What about that? They just said it at the event. And Biden's response is, well, they did. They knew, but I didn't. Which, again, is contradictory to the claim that they were all over this from the beginning. Part of it is they're arguing, well, no one really could have known how bad this was going to be. And as soon as we got an inkling there was a problem, we've been on it all the way back to the Saki era. Right? We're on this. We've been on it for months. This is not new to us. Biden has now admitted that he didn't know anything about it until April. And by the way, the recall that triggered all of this happened in February. And a recall doesn't just happen at the drop of a hat. There's a whole series of events leading up to it in the bureaucracy. There was a lot of warning here, which is why there was reporting about it in The Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. Months before Biden now admits he first heard about the problem. And it's a big problem. The ability of American parents to feed their infants seems significant. But who could have known? We didn't really realize. Then the follow-up is, well, they realized. The experts, the people who run these companies, they realized immediately. He says, well, they understood it, but we didn't. I didn't. That's the problem, Mr. President. That's the whole problem. And look, you could accuse 
critics here, myself included, of being nitpicky and saying, look, the president is not omnipotent. He cannot be on top of every single problem that might arise in the country. But this is part of a sequence, a series, a pattern where this administration and this president and their policies either directly cause or contribute to a major crisis and they either are responsible for it or they are very, very late in doing anything about it and really don't start to do anything about it seemingly until they have a political problem on their hands. And the sequencing of action and inaction Knowledge or lack thereof suggests that what they've put together, what they're trying to portray on the timeline here isn't really correct. Because if there was a lot of warning about this in the earliest weeks of 2022, where it was actually making national news and there was a buildup to a recall. Why did it take months for the president to be made aware of it? And how can he say that no one really understood what the ramifications and reverberations would be when he was just at an event where the experts in charge and the CEOs of the company said this was something we understood immediately? Then he throws up his hands like, well, they they understood that. I didn't understand it, but they did. So then there was an exchange with Corrine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, who I will just say, so far, as we mentioned yesterday and also last week, I think she is struggling to find her footing in the position, is how I'll put it. And in fairness to her, it's not like she's worse than the president himself when it comes to messaging. Problem is, the president is bad at this stuff, as we just heard there, where he tangled himself up and made... Basically a soundbite, a little billboard about his own incompetence and his team's incompetence. So this was a follow-up in Cut 41 yesterday in the White House briefing room. Listen. We did everything that we can from the moment uh, that we learned about the recall uh, to, to, um, to work 24-7 to, to make sure that the production went up. I, I guess that just doesn't address the question of why it was that the president didn't know when the manufacturers are saying that they knew as soon as the recalls happened, as soon as the plant was shut down, that this would be a very serious problem. Was there a breakdown in the process here? Did somebody fail to inform him? Look, I have not spoken to the president. I know that he just said that uh, a few moments ago. Uh, so I would have to uh, I would have to talk to him about about the April date. But what I can tell you is what he has seen, and this I know for certain, is that seeing the empty shelves is unacceptable. Oh, well, way out on a limb there. Rest assured, America, President Biden does believe that empty shelves where people cannot get baby formula to feed their kid, he believes that's unacceptable. Great. That will achieve what nothing i don't get like what happens in her head to have her say things like this it's like oh well gosh you you got me on that one but what i do know is the president feels this is unacceptable she also did this just this week on the economy and inflation too about the feel your pain routine 
The president knows. The president knows firsthand how painful this is. And I, I don't know. He's been a U.S. senator since 1973 and then vice president and president. He's been kind of protected from a lot of this stuff for a long time. So I'm not really sure if he personally feels what she's talking about, but just repeating over and over again how the president is unhappy with something or understands something is not acceptable or painful for the public, that's not a substitute for meaningful, timely, competent action, which is the problem here. Not just on this particular issue, on a bunch of them. I think Jean-Pierre referred earlier today to the fact that Biden has multiple crises that he's dealing with. Yes, he does. In some ways, you might say that he and his team are the crisis, given how many they are and how much of the problem, speaking broadly, has been directly caused by or fueled by their policy decisions. I want to hear actually that clip again, because and and Listen to the first part before the reporter pushes back. Listen to how Jean-Pierre is trying to frame this. Oh, we were working so hard on this from the very beginning. 24-7 we were working on this thing. Listen again. Cut 41. We did everything that we can from the moment uh, that we learned about the recall uh, to, to, um, to work 24-7 to, to make sure that the production went up. I, I guess that's just doesn't address the question of why it was that the president didn't know when the manufacturers are saying that they knew as soon as the recalls happened, as soon as the plant was shut down, that this would be a very serious problem. Was there a breakdown in the process here? Did somebody fail to inform him? Look, I have not spoken to the president. I know that he just said that uh, a few moments ago. Uh, so I would have to uh, I would have to talk to him about about the April date. But what I can tell you is what he has seen, and this I know for certain, is that seeing the empty shelves is unacceptable. Kind of sounds like this was an example, again, of Biden saying something where his staff then had to scramble, like, what the hell did he just say? Did Biden just admit he didn't know about this at all until April? And good for that reporter for calling it out, because the claim from the White House, the official spokesperson for the president, is The moment we learned about the recall at the Abbott plant, we were working 24-7 on the issue. Oh, by the way, I was just Googling about this. Here is a Wall Street Journal article, January 12th, 2022. Baby formula is hard to find. The shortage was making national news in a national newspaper in January. This was before the recall. There was rumblings of this. There were problems afoot. Now, the White House says they didn't really get to understand how bad it was until the recall happened. That would be February. We are now in in June. And they triumphantly beat their chest. Look, another airplane has come in from Germany. I guess the most recent one is the U.K., We're bringing this stuff in that we wouldn't let you buy forever, but now we're making an exception because we're responsive. It's keeping babies alive and has for years over there, but it's been too dangerous for Americans, but not for now, so you're welcome. That's happening in May and June when the problem started before February, as we've noted, 
but clearly in earnest back in February. And the White House spokesperson is like, oh, we were on it. We were all over it like white on rice. You wouldn't believe how hard we were working. You'd think there's round the clock people in the Situation Room, bleary-eyed, bloodshot eyes. Oh, we're just trying to get this baby formula problem fixed. Do you believe that? Does anyone believe that? Because then Biden sort of like wanders out and says, well, golly, I didn't hear about it until April. Two months later, a big lag where the problem only festered and deepened and got worse. And you can just imagine the aides at the White House being like, oh, God, facepalm. Why did he say that? And then in the exchange with Biden himself that we played just a few moments ago, the reporter's like, well, hang on. The CEOs of the relevant companies were crystal clear on the depth of this problem instantly as soon as the recall happened. And Biden's like, oh, well, gosh, they knew that. I I didn't know it. It is just a picture of lethargic incompetence over and over again. I think some of it's probably worse than incompetence. This is probably just incompetence. And it's a good reminder, as I like to do from time to time here. The Democratic Party believes that the federal government should do a lot more things. They want to spend a lot more money. In fact, they just came close within a vote or two in the Senate of passing five trillion more dollars in new federal spending. Just eye popping amounts. They believe that the size and the scope of government should do nothing but grow. The powers and responsibilities of the federal government should go up, 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 inexorably in one direction, always and forever. And in order to pay for it, they're going to tax you more. They want to confiscate more of your money so they can do more things in the federal government. And then lie and tell you it's really just tax increases for some fat cats and you know, multimillionaires and billionaires and uh, business owners. And then when you see their actual proposals, it actually comes for a lot more people, including a ton of people in the working class and the middle class. They just don't tell the truth about that. That is one of the central tenets, that whole idea. Expansion of government, more spending, more taxation. That's the Democratic Party. I mean, then there's all the crazy social justice warrior woke stuff and the crazy social policies. That's another side of the Democratic Party. But in terms of their domestic agenda on the economy, it is expand the government, tax and spend forever. More and more. And if you even freeze it, that's a cut and you're killing people, right? That's the argument. And yet a federal government, in this case, aware of a problem, at least they should have been with headlines in newspapers in January about the inability of people to find baby formula to feed their children in this country, then a big recall in February, which all the experts in that realm understood instantly what a problem it was. Then they pretend that this, the federal government and the executive branch was really focused on it like a laser 24-7 to the point that the president now admits he didn't even hear about it until April. And their solution finally is to cut some red tape and fly some planes over with the formula from Europe that you couldn't get otherwise. And they wonder why people like us might say, let's not give them even more power. 
They're very bad at what they currently do already. They're wasteful and incompetent and stupid a lot of the time. Let's not expand their portfolio and give them more of our money or money that we're borrowing to do even more things. Let's just stick to basic things. Once they can get those rights and get that, you know, mastered and correct, then we'll talk. You think that kind of self-reflection is going to happen in Washington, D.C.? Nope. Never. Don't hold your breath. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. We continue. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here, as we always are, grateful and humbled. So we're getting awfully close, what, five days out from a big election out in California. It's a recall election against the district attorney in SF, Chesa Boudin, who is effectively pro-criminal. Soft on crime doesn't quite cover it. He is the progeny of literal domestic terrorists. And so I guess maybe as a soft spot for people who break the law. That's his policy stance, at least. And the people of San Francisco have been disgusted. They've already recalled three members of the school board. The polls are looking bad for Boudin. We'll know June the 7th. What's hilarious, he's now out there trying to claim that he never supported defund the police or that movement. But there are multiple quotes showing that that's false. Like, we have the receipts. You're not fooling anyone. There's a reckoning coming. We'll see if the people of San Francisco get this one right again, which is a weird thing to say. Another hour coming up. Guy Benson Show. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Fresh for you here. Hot off the stove. Our middle of three hours from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast free of charge on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. A good day for the Dow. Up 434 at the close. Ending at 33,248. Also bring you this additional Fox News alert. This breaking earlier today, a judge has added four years to the sentence of disgraced attorney Michael Avenatti. That some people refer to as a creepy porn lawyer. He was the one who represented Stormy Daniels during that whole saga, and he defrauded her and was convicted of that fraud So now a four-year sentence, which will be running concurrently with another sentence that he's currently serving. When he was trying to, I guess, bully Nike into paying him off. So quite a savory character, this guy, Stormy Daniels, trying to rip off companies while defrauding his own clients. So... It appears that that will likely tack on two-plus years to the overall sentence. I only bring that up not because I'm terribly interested in the life and times of Michael Avenatti. He's always been obviously very sleazy. I bring it up because he was given shocking amounts of airtime on our competitors for years because he was the guy going after Trump. I mean, he was, quote, seriously 
considering running for president. And there were people on other networks saying, oh, don't don't count him out. Don't discount this. They put him on those networks more than a lot of the people who work and get paychecks from those networks on air people. They could not get enough Michael Avenatti as a credible source. And now he's like a multi-time convicted felon. It's like how resistance stuff can break your brain. This would be one of those examples. Joining us now is Miranda Devine of the New York Post, a columnist there, Fox News contributor, author of the book Laptop from Hell. Miranda, good to have you back on the show. Great to be with you, Guy. Just quickly, your reaction to this Avenatti news today, another blow against his credibility, which honestly was already in tatters and really should have been far, far before everyone was finally willing to admit it. Well, and it's a blow to the credibility of the left-wing media that turned him into some kind of a hero. I mean, remember, he was even being talked of as a serious presidential contender for 2020. Right. <laughs> uh, this was CNN and NBC, and it, they all loved him. They could not get enough of him. They saw him as the anti-Trump. And now they can't, you know, they, they're trying to rewrite history and make out that, oh, you know, we knew that he was a kind of a suspicious sort of character in the first place. No, they didn't. They don't care about the character of a person. All they care about is how it's going to help them prosecute whatever fake narrative they're up to at the time. I would also remind everyone that Avenatti was the lawyer who perpetrated the gang rape hoax against then-Judge Brett Kavanaugh during his hearings. Remember that crazy woman came forward and said that Kavanaugh was organizing serial gang rape parties? Her lawyer was Michael Avenatti. It was totally debunked. The Senate Democrats, all of them on the committee, used that crazy allegation to call on Kavanaugh to withdraw from the process. Obviously, he didn't. He was confirmed. It was a giant smear attempt. And Avenatti somehow wormed his way into even that. And right now he remains behind bars. Miranda, I do want to ask you, we tried to book you on the show recently, but you were down under. You were down in Australia. There was a big election recently. And I just want to get your overall analysis of what happened. I know the the ruling party, which is the liberal party, which is the right-leaning party. They call themselves liberals. It's the right-leaning party. Labor is the left party. Labor came into power in this election. That's what the polls were indicating were you surprised by the outcome at all, uh, and and why did the conservative government fall? I wasn't really surprised. I mean, look, in Australia, normally after three terms, uh, the the populace throws out the government one way or the other. Uh, this is a tired government. It was internally divided. They'd had, oh, I think, four prime ministers uh, in in their sort of term of, you know, three in their three, uh, eight years. And um, I, 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 but the sad thing for Australia is that I think the whole country sort of moved left, like a lot of the world, the Western world anyway, during the pandemic. And uh, there were some states there that uh, just had extreme lockdowns uh, sort of social there, it's a, it's a federation like America, and there were some of the states where the governors, the premiers, are very left, very left wing, very socialist. Um, they locked down their people really hard, and they became more popular as a result. So it shows you 
terrifyingly that fear and uh, you know is a great way of controlling people, controlling voters. And look, I mean, I have to admit the Liberal government made a lot of mistakes, um, but and they did try to appease the left on climate change, which never really works. But it's a disaster for Australia because you have a really, uh, you know, subpar prime minister now who's not what he pretends to be. It's a little bit of a Biden-esque situation where he presented himself as a moderate, whereas his history is to be he's on the hard left, the socialist left of the already left-wing Labor Party. And not only that, the Greens Party, which is super radical left, uh, sort of AOC or worse, Um, they have picked up more seats. They have more power than ever before. So it really is going to be disastrous for Australia, particularly when it comes to energy, because this new government, this Labor government, is promising to uh, basically, you know, stamp stamp out fossil fuels. And that's been Australia's great cheap energy advantage uh, throughout its history. Miranda, I will point out briefly, because sometimes people on the left will talk about our institutions and our system and the popular vote, and they hate the Electoral College. Well, they have a very different system down in Australia. I would point out that the winners of the popular vote was the incumbent Conservative Party, the Liberal Party. They won more votes than anyone else. They won 36 percent of the popular vote. The victorious Labor Party won less than 33 percent of the vote, and yet they gained a bunch of seats and now power. So I I think the cries about who won the popular vote from the left might not apply to Australia because that goes to your previous point. They're very selective and situational in some of these arguments, depending on the power dynamics. We have about a minute left, Miranda, quickly, the latest on the Hunter Biden laptop situation. I know there have been a few developments. Yes, well, look, we're really seeing a situation where the empire is fighting back. Uh, Hunter Biden, his allies, particularly someone, uh, a very wealthy entertainment lawyer called Kevin Morris in L.A., who made all his money with the South Park guys, he's become Hunter's new best friend, or as Hunter's other friends call him, Hunter's sugar brother. He's paid off uh, more than $2 million of his unpaid taxes to help him out of the hole that he's in with that Delaware uh, investigation. And uh, he's also apparently paying for his $20,000 a month uh, rent on his Malibu house. So uh, he's also put together this war room of about 30 investigators and lawyers to try to flip the script on the laptop. Uh, they're well, not actually... well, I mean, good luck. It's nice to have people with that deep pockets, uh, I guess, having your back, as Hunter seems to have. Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor. Thank you, Miranda. Back soon. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. I want to talk about something that the Daily Beast did yesterday, a story about the death of a school principal in Florida. It's been a little while since we waded back into the business of the media sliming and smearing Ron DeSantis, although we have happily waged those battles many times, and I think We probably will many times into the future. That's my suspicion. Here's the latest example. The Daily Beast publishes this tweet. When Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sparked outrage by calling students and teachers back to schools in July 2020, Principal Jimbo Jackson pushed back. 
Now, nearly two years later, Jackson has died after suffering complications from long COVID. So the implication clearly in the headline, in the tweet, in the story is there was a big controversy when DeSantis demanded that the schools reopen for last school year. This principal at the time fought against DeSantis on it. And now that man has died because of COVID. Although the way that they frame it is suffering complications from long COVID. This is roughly two years later. Now, long COVID is a very complicated thing. It's hard to pin down. A lot of researchers seem baffled by it. And directly assigning a cause of death to complications with long COVID, I think, is a hazy, tenuous business. And we've had doctors on the show talk about that here. But let's just for the sake of argument say that this was two years on directly tied to this individual's COVID. This story is still an outrageous, unfair, egregious attack on DeSantis for a few reasons. Number one, the principal in question, Jimbo Jackson, let me just say, based on some local news accounts that I read, he was a pillar of the community, beloved, very well liked. He leaves behind a family and many people who admired him. We are very sorry for them. We wish them peace and we hope that he rests in peace. Every life is precious. This is very sad. This is not about him. This is about the media coverage and the framing in the Daily Beast. You would think from that tweet, from that headline, that DeSantis forced this man back into schools over his own objections. Then when he went back to school, he got COVID in a Florida school and then died from it. That is the story that it seems like they want you to tell yourself. Those are the dots that they want you to connect in your own head. But the timeline is, in fact, not that. Indeed, when you look at the details, Mr. Jackson contracted COVID not in school over the summer of 2020 when school was out anyway, when schools were closed for the summer before the school reopening ordered by Governor DeSantis. So the virus that he got that based on this framing eventually through the long-term process contributed to his death. He encountered and came down with COVID, not in a Florida school, not in a classroom, because it happened over the summer when schools were closed. So the implication that a policy decision by Ron DeSantis had anything to do with the sequence of events that ultimately led to this man's death is factually, completely false and inaccurate. It is a hit job, period. One more point on this. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that this principal had been sent back to work against his wishes, as he had warned otherwise by the governor's policy, and he had gotten COVID at the school and ended up dying. That would still not be proof that DeSantis made the wrong decision. In fact, DeSantis, based on 
virtually all of the evidence made the right decision. There are very few people who are still trying to pretend that school closures were anything other than a disaster. We had a big experiment where within the weeks and certainly early months after the onset of the pandemic, a bunch of schools reopened around the world and in the United States. Those schools did not turn out to be vectors for the disease. They were not super spreader locations. In fact, the data showed that being in a school was probably one of the safest places you could be vis-a-vis COVID, certainly compared to the rest of the community. DeSantis had done the research. He had done the reading. He had done a deep dive into the data itself and made a tough, controversial, hard decision that was correct. It was hard because people like Jimbo Jackson were saying, we shouldn't do this, warning against it. I'm sure those preferences were offered in good faith. He meant well. But in light of the evidence, in retrospect, he was incorrect and DeSantis was right. And think about all of the harm that was spared the children of Florida because DeSantis followed the science and followed the data and followed the evidence and reopened the schools. We now know about learning loss. We know about emotional and physical development problems among kids who had their schools closed for a year and a half like they were in a lot of California and the West Coast and Illinois and Massachusetts and a lot of these blue states. The wages inflicted on kids of those bad anti-science decisions are still being quantified and I think will echo for years to come. DeSantis spared the children of his state that harm and that suffering, and he did so By following the actual science, learning was saved, development was preserved, major mental and emotional health issues were avoided or mitigated, and lives were saved. By opening the schools in the fall of 2020, Ron DeSantis did the right thing by every relevant metric. And it's extraordinary, but perhaps not surprising, to see some people who were catastrophically wrong about that judgment call back then, still trying to find weaselly, gross, nasty ways to attack him for being right when they were so wrong. And I don't think it gets much lower than trying to link someone to another person's death, especially when the facts of the actual case itself totally disprove the thesis. They're trying to link it. They're trying to make an implication They're trying to demonize, and they're hoping that a lot of their readers or people in the public just don't really ever see the details or the specifics. It's just, oh, there's that monster Ron DeSantis doing what he does. Ron Death Sentence. Ron Death Sentence, whatever they want to call him, here's another example to just put into the bloodstream, put into the ether, because, as I've said multiple times, they are afraid of him politically They hate him on an ideological and partisan basis, and they are willing to engage in these smear jobs. And at least here on this program, we are not going to let them get away with it. Awful yellow journalism at the Daily Beast on this one in a piece authored by the outlet's senior entertainment reporter. Maybe stick to Hollywood next time. 
When we come back, a Floridian, Charles C.W. Cook, a transplant from the U.K., will join us on the Second Amendment and guns. Some analysis that I think is very relevant and important, cutting through a lot of the clutter. It's coming up next. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the show. Thank you for listening. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Everything you need related to the program is right there, including the free podcast on demand. If you miss any part of any show, it's all right there. GuyBensonShow.com at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. Joining us now is Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer at National Review. And Charles, it's good to have you back here. Thank you for having me. I want to talk a bit about the Second Amendment and guns. And as we set up that discussion, I know I've spoken about this with you before, but for audience members who might not be familiar with you and your journey on this issue, just give us that brief background of growing up in the UK and sharing a lot of the bafflement, frankly, that a lot of Brits and other Europeans and people around the world feel when they hear about American gun culture and how you decided to start really sinking your teeth into the issue and what that led you to believe and change your mind about. Sure. Well, I'll try and keep this brief so we could talk about uh, more uh, than, than just my journey to it. But uh, I grew up in England, and uh, while there are some guns, there aren't many, and there's certainly no gun culture, and there's no constitutional protections. And my assumption as a kid uh, was that nobody needed to own a gun, and indeed that the American Second Amendment was outdated if not misinterpreted. And um, I just held that as a presumptive article of faith. And then when I went to university, uh, one of the topics in my second year was uh, the Dred Scott decision and the lead-up to the Civil War. And I read the Dred Scott decision, and it baffled me that Justice Tawney, in what is an outrageous and disgraceful ruling, says... In effect, you know, if we allow free blacks to become citizens, they'll enjoy all the rights that whites do. And he lists them. And among them is the right to keep and bear arms. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. How could a free black enjoy the right to keep and bear arms if it's limited to the militia, given that they wouldn't be in a militia? So when I went back for my third year, I chose this topic as my thesis, the passage of the Second Amendment. And I realized, ah, well, actually... This really isn't much of a debate. Um, uh, I was still against gun ownership as a matter of policy, but as a matter of history, I changed my mind. And then the more I read about this, the the more I became skeptical in a country with this many guns that gun control could work. And uh, I am now, as you find me, a defender of the Second Amendment. So with that backdrop, you often, when the Second Amendment comes under scrutiny and debate in this country— you find yourself writing pieces and giving interviews talking about what you just described because there are a lot of people in our politics, in our media, who assert, especially after a horrible atrocity or a mass shooting, that we have a broken gun culture, a gun obsession in this country, and it's all rooted in an amendment to the Constitution that doesn't actually say what conservatives – 
believe it says, they would argue that there really isn't an individual right to own weapons and that we've got it all wrong. And it really is about a well-regulated militia and it has been totally distorted and twisted through the years. And really the understanding that the Second Amendment protects an individual constitutional right to own a firearm is a modern phenomenon sort of invented by modern conservatism, and it actually isn't what the Constitution teaches uh, and and prescribes. What is your response to that on substance? It's a lie. It's a falsehood. It's misinformation, to use a popular phrase. I think we ought to separate out the question of the desirability of gun control from the question of historical fact. In a sense, this is a little bit like the abortion debate. Roe versus Wade is nonsense and should be regarded as nonsense and has been regarded as nonsense by many people who are pro-choice. It's simply not an accurate reflection of the Constitution's text. Irrespective of whether one is for or against gun control, the Heller decision is an accurate reflection of the Constitution's text. The individual right to keep and bear arms has been understood to be a part of that Constitution, both in the Second Amendment and then as incorporated in the 14th Amendment for more than 200 years. This idea that this is a modern phenomenon, that it was invented by Justice Scalia in 2008 or by the NRA in the 1970s, is belied by all the information. First off, much of the work that was done, not all of it, of course, a lot of work was done by conservatives, but much of the work that was done in laying the groundwork for the Parker decision and then the Heller decision was done by progressive law scholars. Lawrence Tribe changed his mind on this. Akil Reed Amar, uh, Sanford Levinson. Uh, these figures are not conservatives. They're not in the pay of the NRA. They're not in favor of the widespread ownership of firearms. But what they are is honest. But we don't even need to focus on the modern world. Just go back at any point and read. Go back to the founding. Read every contemporary commentary on the Second Amendment. Read the debates the ratification of the Bill of Rights, Uh, read early uh, analyses from William Rawl and St. George Tucker and Joseph Story, go to the late 19th century, read the uh, most popular legal textbook of the time written by Thomas Cooley, go to the debates over the ratification of the 14th Amendment. The men who wrote it were clear what the Privileges and Immunities Clause applied to and what it was supposed to do, which in part was to arm freed blacks. Uh, listen to Hubert Humphrey, not a conservative, talking in 1960 while campaigning for JFK about individual uh, arms ownership. This is silly. We can debate guns. We can debate gun control. We can debate whether individuals should own guns at all. But let's not rewrite history. And, And one more thing I would say on this. The idea that all of this hinges upon the interpretation of the Second Amendment is silly, Uh, when we remember that 45 of the 50 states have their own right to keep and bear arms in the state constitutions, and that all of those predated Heller. They all predated 2008. The first is put in in 1776, and they just stack up over time. Most of them refer to an individual right to keep and bear arms. This was not a new idea uh, built in the 1970s. This has been there right from the beginning of American history. What about this point about militias? Well, maybe you can have a gun so long as you're serving in a well-regulated militia. People like to highlight those few words and say this proves that this broader individual right 
is not what it seems. What's your response? What's your rebuttal to that point? Well, however you look at it, it doesn't make any sense. For a start, it's a prefatory clause. Those were common at the time, as Eugene Velokas pointed out. It's an explanatory clause. It's there as much as anything to reiterate opposition to standing armies, which we got, but which the founders didn't want. Second, uh, the militias, which did exist, were drawn from the people who were presumed to be armed. Third, the right is of the people. I understand it says well-regulated militia, although, of course, regulated doesn't mean uh, regulated in the way we use it now. Uh, But the uh, operative clause says the right of the people to keep and bear arms. There is nowhere else in the Constitution or in the Bill of Rights where of the people means of the government. It means of the individual, absolutely everywhere. Fourth, when James Madison wrote the uh, Bill of Rights, and the, the Second Amendment was originally the Fourth Amendment. The first two got dropped, and the third became the first, and the fourth became the second. He didn't know that it would be attached to the Constitution separately and deemed to override it. He thought that the text that they were working on might be inserted into the Constitution um, at various points. And he wanted to put the Second Amendment into the part of the unamended Constitution that contained individual rights such as habeas corpus, not into the militia clause, which was already there. I think that demonstrates clearly what this meant uh, and and what it was. Um, But lastly, as the Heller decision noted, it doesn't even make sense on its own terms. Why on earth, in an individual Bill of Rights, would the founders, who were committed to private gun ownership, you know, Roger Sherman says when the Bill of Rights is introduced, this is an individual right and it's important. Why would they give individuals the right to join a state-run organization over which the federal government had plenary power and could exclude them? It's, it's just nonsense. Yeah, no, I think that's very persuasive if not dispositive, frankly, and it's important to think these things through and to hear these arguments because there's a lot of noise out there, and there are arguments that are made that are spurious, specious, but take people in because a lot of folks have just a very glancing knowledge of any of this at best. Another one that you'll hear, Charles, that I want to get your response to is, well, maybe there was an individual right to keep and bear firearms, but at the time that the Constitution was ratified and amended, we were talking about muskets, and they would fire a single bullet at a time, and there was a whole production to get another bullet in there and to fire it. It's not really the same type of machinery that is available today where people can fire multiple rounds, you know, just one round per pull of the trigger and many bullets at a time without having to reload. It's not really the same thing. And so maybe there's a right to bear muskets in the United States today, but not these more powerful weapons with large uh, capacities for ammunition. What do you make of that? I think there are a couple of problems with that argument. The first one is the Constitution is quite carefully written such that it covers categories and not items. For example, uh, the First Amendment refers to the press. It doesn't refer to newspapers or parchment. Uh, The Second Amendment refers to arms. It doesn't refer to muskets. Uh, The Fourth Amendment uh, refers to effects. Uh, It doesn't refer to candles. So 
we're dealing with a constitution that deliberately covers groups of things. So the question then becomes, well, what is an effect? Or what is the press? Or what is a religion? Or in this case, what are arms? Now, the founders uh, did distinguish between ordnance and arms. Ordnance would be, say, uh, a bomb. And arms would be, according to Black's Law Dictionary, which was written at the time, pistol, carbine, uh, a rifle, a dagger. That matters when we're looking at modern weapons, uh, because a Glock is a pistol and an AR-15 is a carbine. uh, And as such, should be covered by that categorical protection. Uh, The second point is that while it is true that the founders never saw, say, an AR-15, it's not true that they only saw muskets. Um, They were familiar with uh, repeating rifles. They were familiar with the puckle gun. Um, Also, while while it may not be covered by the Second Amendment because it could theoretically be cast as ordnance, a lot of Americans at the time of the founding owned cannon. In fact, there's a provision in the Constitution uh, that imagines Americans owning private warships. So the idea uh, that this was in some way limited to muskets, uh, I think, doesn't make sense in historical terms either. Well, and President Biden has said exactly the opposite when it comes to cannons. He brings up that example wrongly over and over again. And I'm with you, Charles. Let's have an honest debate about guns and what policy should look like in this country. But it has to be an honest debate. And that very much needs to feature honest understandings of what the Constitution says. And if you don't like what the Constitution says, you can't just invent what you hope it might say. It says what it says. You've done, I think, a very good job of walking through some of it in great detail here. And that's the jumping off point for any discussion that I'm willing to have, at least. And you've done this work repeatedly. You've written about it again at National Review. People can Google your name, National Review, Guns, Second Amendment, and a whole wealth of information comes up if they're interested in digging a little bit further. Charles, quickly before you go, totally different subject. When you've been on the show previously, we've mentioned that you are a Floridian. You live down in the Sunshine State. You did a very good job, I think it was last year, really filleting this woman, Rebecca Jones, a conspiracy theorist who was lying about what she was told to do. She was fired for being a whistleblower on COVID. It was all nonsense. You picked that all apart. There was an inspector general finding just in the last few days, was there not, about her claims. Can you bring us that update briefly? Yes. So a year ago, Rebecca Jones claimed that she had been granted whistleblower status, which was yet another lie. What she had done is applied for whistleblower status, and that triggered an inspector general investigation into the claims that she was making that, if true, would have substantiated the whistleblower status. And, of course, her problem was, as ever, that her claims aren't true. And this Inspector General report, which denied her whistleblower status and which exonerated the state of Florida, went through pretty rigorously and explained why what she claimed didn't happen and could not have happened. Uh, Florida did not do what Rebecca Jones said that it had done. Uh, And, frankly, at points in the report, you get the impression that they are baffled by her and uh, that they are uh, concerned that she doesn't really know what she's talking about, which is, I'm afraid, consistent with everything I've seen uh, over the last two years. Meanwhile, she continues to face criminal charges, including felony charges 
related to accessing information that she did not have authority to access. She also has, I think, a misdemeanor charge involving sexual stalking. She had sex with a student when she was teaching at Florida State. She is now seeking a congressional seat. Quite a colorful character. Some people took her seriously in the media and the Democratic Party, much to their shame. She's a crackpot. She had mentioned at one point, Charles, I think a threat of maybe suing you over your piece, exposing all of her lies. Did that lawsuit ever materialize? No, I'm still waiting for it. Although somebody did send me the other day a blog post that she'd written in which she claimed that I had already been successfully sued, which, if true, is news to me. (laughs) Amazing. Just the lies pile up. Totally shameless. So that's the conclusion, maybe, to that whole saga from Charles C.W. Cook of National Review, our guest here. Charles, always enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you. Talk soon. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. Last evening when we were on special report, I was on the panel last night. There was some breaking news out of Oklahoma and Tulsa, a mass shooting at a hospital. And that touched off yet another round of anger and recriminations and speculation at the time about what was happening. The shooting happened around the anniversary, the 101st anniversary of the terrible, infamous 1921 Tulsa race massacre. So a lot of people assumed this was probably racially inspired and white supremacy. Well, it turned out that the gunman in this case was black. He was not inspired or motivated by race. He targeted the hospital because he was trying to kill a doctor who had operated on him, and he believed that he had been the victim of malpractice or something along those lines. And so that was what caused him to show up at this hospital and kill four people before he was killed, which is awful. It also didn't fit some of the early narratives, and so it did not get quite the attention that it might have if some of the details had been different, which is how coverage on these things seems to go a lot of the time. President Biden is expected to give remarks this evening in primetime about gun violence. He's spoken about it several times in the last week, but he will give a primetime address tonight. We will have a reaction tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show. Final hour coming up. Larry Kudlow is here when we return. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the final hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our happy hour. On this Thursday, thank you so much for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, every single day, Monday through Friday, that's the show. The happy hour is 5 to 6 Eastern time. So glad you are here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is growing by leaps and bounds thanks to you. If you can't listen live, the podcast is always free on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts, At Guy Benson Show is our Twitter handle. It's also our Instagram feed. Follow us on those platforms. And this hour is sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink. 
which is delicious and often in my fridge. And I encourage you to try it. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only as they expand. TheLongDrink.com. You can plug in your zip code. They'll show you where you can buy the product near you. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. With us now is Larry Kudlow, host of Kudlow on Fox Business Network every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Former director of the National Economic Council under President Trump. And Larry, it's great to have you back here as always. Thank you, Guy. Thanks very much. I want to just start with your overall thoughts on President Biden's quote-unquote plan on inflation. We know that the administration has decided that they need to be more aggressive when it comes to their messaging on this issue. So he's got op-eds. They're out there talking up the economy as much as they can. They're talking about their solutions and plans. I know that you are very skeptical and dubious. Your thoughts? Well, look at quickly summary. It's a non-plan plan, and it's a non-apology apology. I mean, they have this sort of, I feel your pain, and now we're going to do something about it. And Janet Yellen runs around begging for forgiveness. But really, they're blaming Vladimir Putin, and they're blaming pandemic supply shortages. So it's the same old song. They won't fess up or take, uh, you know, take uh, the burden of their own progressive policies to spend and print money is sort of big government spending, welfare state spending, and easy money. This is modern monetary theory. And when you look at Janet Yellen, what she's been talking about is she doesn't mention the administration's role in this inflation, but it's a considerable role. We didn't need the stimmy package in March of 2021. And of course, the Fed has been buying up all the bonds from deficit spending. So look, Nothing's going to change as far as their policies. If you read it carefully, Biden's that bad. He's going to blame the Fed, number one. Number two, he wants more Build Back Better spending, more Green New Deal spending, more welfare spending. It's crazy. And number three, there's no credibility. He, you know, the deficit came down because emergency programs expired. And because I might add the Trump economy, which was very strong, and the Trump tax cuts have delivered a lot of revenues. But the deficit actually is going to stay at record levels for the next half dozen, you know, eight years, according to the CBO. So, look, I have a plan. OK, give me a sec. I got a plan. You want to you want to curb spending? You want yeah, to cut low plan. I mean, the economy is about flat. OK, one, two, three. Number one, we need make the Trump tax cuts on corporations permanent, make the repatriation of overseas profits permanent. OK, Cut tax rates on individuals and small businesses. Deregulate. Deregulate energy. Okay, let's go back to energy independence. Deregulate business. Stop blaming business, uh, you know, for profits. Uh, Stop going after them with the IRS or the uh, EPA or the SEC or the Federal Reserve. And raise interest rates to protect the value of the dollar. That's what they need to do. Throw out progressivism. Throw out monetary, uh, modern monetary theory. Acknowledge your failures, which they'll never do. But that's what's going to happen. They're not going to change, but the voters are going to change it for them. The cavalry is coming. We talked yesterday on the show with our colleague Charles Payne, and I asked him about this because you were mentioning how they always seem at the White House and in the administration and on Capitol Hill on the Democratic side 
to not address or even contemplate the role that they had in fueling inflation with the trillions of unnecessary and wasteful spending, and they really wanted to make it even worse. They got $2 trillion. They wanted it to be $7 trillion with Build Back Better, but it was way too much, way too fast, after an enormous amount of money had already been pumped into the economy uh, by Congress in the previous administration with the COVID emergency, by the Fed. And there was a bit of a battle playing out just yesterday between Steve Ratner from the Obama administration, who was on MSNBC, saying, look, this is the price we pay. You don't have a free lunch when you spend this much money. And he's talked a lot about that rescue plan as being one of the culprits here. Ultimately, and I'm paraphrasing, the chickens come home to roost. And then we saw Biden economists from the current administration going after him saying, oh, it's interesting how they keep fixating on things that really didn't have much of an impact. This is global. This is Putin. This is supply chains. This is Democrat on Democrat fighting happening right now, Larry. And I'm curious, off on the sidelines, how you view that. This is Guy Benson's fault. This is Larry Kudlow's fault. This is Donald Trump's fault. This is the man in the moon's fault. I mean, they won't fess up or acknowledge that it was their progressive policies. You know, again, you're right, the STEMI, the welfare state spending, the Green New Deal. I mean, look, the supply side of the economy has been choked off because of all the energy regulations, all the rabid left-wing environmental extremism. You know, gasoline prices are at record highs because of inadequate supply. Okay, there's not enough drilling, fracking. There's not enough pipelines. We needed new pipelines. And there are too many environmental restrictions. No new permits are being put in. They're also attacking business in general. I mean, this is a don't forget this part. Uh, They've tried to put the fear of God into business. Anybody making good profits is to blame. You know, poultry, uh, 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 technology, of course, energy. They've got a radical at the Federal Trade Commission, uh, the Federal Reserve, and the SEC is among the worst, a 2,000-page rulemaking, some such, uh, which would – every single business has to show their climate impact, but not just, not just theirs, but their customers and their producers, and not just now. They go back in time in order to forecast the future. So right. no, the climate it's... impact is a chilling effect on business investment. I mean, look at uh, the, the – if, if you look at the uh, Atlanta Fed's GDP now, 1.3% is the estimate for Q2. The first quarter fell by a little over 1%. In other words, the economy is basically flat. Uh, you're going to see slower job growth now, and we'll get a report tomorrow. You'll see a, dip- a slowdown in employment. Uh, consumer spending is slowing down, and a lot of this is because of inflation. But I'm just saying their demand-side policies are wrong. Their supply-side policies are wrong. And they still talk about raising taxes, right? Raise taxes on rich people, raise taxes on corporations, raise yeah, on taxes businesses. on international activity. Well, and the, and the thing is, Larry— On that point, we saw, what was it, last week or the week before, the new White House press secretary was asked by Peter Ducey, please explain, in the president's view, how would raising taxes on businesses result in lower prices or lower inflation? And the answer that she gave was 
absolutely incoherent and unresponsive because there is no good answer there. She's not working with much. I think she handled it very badly in terms of just her smoothness in saying nonsense, which is part of the job description, frankly. But it was so aggressive in its total disconnect from the question and the actual core of what was asked. And I think that that was telling. Now, Larry, you're talking about GDP growth, economic growth in general. We've seen Ratner, who I mentioned before, warning about the possibility of a recession, whether it's this year or next year or heading into 24. We've heard some worrisome things from Larry Summers, who was right on inflation. He's nervous about stagflation. He's worried about recession. And then we heard this just, I believe, yesterday, Jamie Dimon talking about dark clouds gathering, basically. And he says he's an optimist. You're another economic optimist, Larry. But when you hear cut six from Jamie Dimon, I'm going to want to hear your reaction right after the soundbite. Look, I'm an optimist. You know, I, I, I said there's storm clouds. There are big storm clouds. There, It's a hurricane. It's we, Right now, it's kind of sunny. Things are doing fine. You know, everyone thinks the, the Fed can handle this. That hurricane is right out there down the road coming our way. We just don't know if it's a minor one or Superstorm Sandy or uh, yeah, Sandy or or uh, Andrew or something like that. And it's you, you better brace yourself. There's a storm coming. Brace yourself. Your reaction, Larry. <laughs> Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon is a good man. Uh, and basically, I agree, I guess, uh, in a uh, general sense. I, I don't agree that the economy is good now, but look at um, he's worried about $150 oil from the Ukraine and the Europeans are cutting. They're going to cut back on their oil imports They'll probably stop by 75 percent. So the price of oil can go up. But, you know, there's Jamie is in a general way. I mean, he's a banker, he's not an economist, but he's giving you the same message. Beware. Uh with the Fed tightening, um, they've just begun to tighten, Guy. But I don't think that's going to end well. Uh, defeating an 8.5% inflation rate or an 11% producer price rate or, you know, defeating $120 oil is a very difficult thing to do. And the idea that monetary policy by itself can deliver low inflation without any economic pain, which is kind of one of Biden's messages, is um, a triumph of hope over experience. I think that the Fed will gradually tighten, and I think you're looking at potential for an election year, a presidential election year recession. It may start in 23. It will continue into 24. That's the huge risk unless policies are changed uh, to go for supply-side growth and stop the welfare state spending. So Congress is going to change hands, and I think there's a lot the Republicans will be able to do to stop the mischief, to end this monetary, modern monetary theory or this progressivism, or uh, Newt Gingrich calls it big government socialism. They, they can stop that. I'm not sure they can launch anything new, but they can stop the bad. Uh, and that's Larry, no, that's a plus. That's why I'm optimistic about how this will play out. But the Bidens, I mean, I've never seen a group in such denial. And, Guy, there, you look at their administration, the thing's crumbling internally. 
people are leaving. The knives are out. What did you have? 21 uh, blacks left. Um, the key tax hiker uh, in the Treasury is leaving. The key tax hiker in the National Economic Council is leaving because they see the failures of the administration and they know they're not going to get these crazy policies through. I don't see, though, here's one thing. Uh, Janet Yellen was asked about this in her forgiveness tour, you know, forgive me, forgive me for missing inflation. But they asked her about pipelines, Guy, and she said pipelines aren't important because pipelines don't produce any energy. See, mm. that's, a, that's, an an, that's an answer that Madam Saki gave months ago. That is just nonsense. It shows a complete lack of understanding. First of all, they can't get permits to drill more. But second of all, if you produce more oil and natural gas, guy, you have to have pipelines to get it to the gas station. Right, to move it. Right, or to the utility. I mean, for heaven's sake, it's like milking a cow without a bucket. So the milk just falls on the barn floor. You have to transport this stuff. You have to distribute. And they, they don't want to do that they, because of these, you know, radical and viral policies. So the outlook for energy is still bad. I mean, I'm really concerned. I think Jamie Dimon's right, too, that oil, we, have, we may not have seen the peak in oil prices, and we have not seen the peak in gasoline prices. I don't think we've seen the peak in food prices either. I mean, inflation is going to be a problem. There's going to be a lot a lot of people saying inflation has peaked. A, I'm not so sure it's peaked. And B, even if it has peaked, it's going to stay at a very rapid growth rate. And that's very bad for the economy. Well, on that cheerful note, Larry Kudlow, we've got to run. I want to ask you also about this baby formula shortage and all of their excuses and Biden now saying, oh, gosh, I didn't know about it until April, even though the recall was in February. And it just seems like they're they're not firing on all cylinders. They're making excuses. They're accidentally admitting things that undercuts their own talking points. It's just been quite a thing to watch. And you say that the White House is crumbling internally. Sometimes you really do get that sense just from their own outward facing rhetoric to the country and to the world. And I know that you're covering it every day on your show, Cudlow, at 4 p.m. Eastern on Fox Business Network. Larry, always great to talk to you. Thank you. Good. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. We will step aside. We will be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. If you're listening on the broadcast... That tune might be familiar, My Country Tis of Thee, which we totally stole, the British national anthem, God Save the Queen, and it is the Platinum Jubilee for Her Majesty, celebrated over a number of days. I've seen Martha McCallum in London on the coverage with Ainsley and Piers Morgan. I'm not a big royals guy, not a big monarchy guy. I'm an Anglophile to a certain extent. I have English blood. They're great allies. The Anglosphere represent great allies to the United States of America. And I appreciate that and our heritage and all of that. And I wish her well. I think she's been a very good monarch. She seems like a good person. She's been through a lot. She was crowned in 1953. She's been on the throne for 70 years. Longest serving monarch in that nation's history. 70 years. As queen, she's now 96 years old. She looked great coming out on the balcony with 
some of her children and grandchildren and waving. It's sort of a cool thing. I don't pine for that. I don't yearn for that. That's not our style here in America. God Save the Queen, their anthem, includes a line that says, happy and glorious, long to reign over us, God Save the Queen. And I would say, happy and glorious, long to reign over them, God Save the Queen. That's my magnanimous American version as Queen Elizabeth II celebrates 70 years as queen, which is just an extraordinary number. Bless her and her family, and hey, if she can live to be 100 or more, I'm all for it, especially if it keeps Charles from becoming king. I'm I just not really into that prospect, not that it really matters all that much. And we're working on getting Martha McCallum to join us from London tomorrow just to give us a taste of what she is seeing and witnessing. It's a huge deal over there. Some people in America are watching very intently. I'm sort of watching out of the corner of my eye. So hopefully we'll get her there just for a little overview on the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. But we're still on the Thursday edition, and we will return to that edition as soon as we come back after this break. Stay with us. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. In the first hour, we open with a long monologue about a very strange thing. Joe Biden's decades-long pattern of lying or exaggerating dramatically about his own life, his own biography. It is very strange to me. We talked about example after example. Here's a taste of today's opening monologue. It's particularly shameless, and I would say above all else, it's really weird. It's really weird how Joe Biden over and over and over again just makes things up about things that he has done in his life, things that have happened to him in his life, things that are just not true. What sparked this whole thought, which catalyzed the piece that I've written at townhall.com, sort of the kickoff to this, was over the long weekend, the president gave the commencement address at the Naval Academy. And at the very beginning of his speech, he told a quick anecdote about his own life and his own connection to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Cut 29, here's the very short snippet. I was appointed to the Academy in 1965 by Senator who I was running against in 1972. And he went on to tell this story about how he didn't end up going to Annapolis, but if he had, he would have been deployed and he couldn't have run against this senator in 1972. He wouldn't have won because he's been in Washington, most of it in the U.S. Senate for decades, as we all know. And some political reporters who were watching the speech said, gosh, that's a story we haven't heard before. And maybe they didn't hear it before because it's not true. It can't be true. At the very least, Biden misremembered or confused the dates. It could not have been 1965. The terminology of being appointed to the Naval Academy, people have disputed that, saying, no, that is absolutely not what happened here. It's not stolen valor, but it's sort of adjacent to that. It's in the neighborhood. He went on to the University of Delaware instead, and he told that story, but... He did not get appointed to the Naval Academy in 1965. It just didn't happen. Now, that might seem like a very small thing. It's certainly not the most important thing happening in America right now. 
but it feeds into this pattern. These serial embellishments or untruths from this man. Here are two more examples of quite a few. Some people might lie on the topic of getting arrested by lying that they did not get arrested in order to get a job or what have you. Joe Biden, on multiple occasions, has lied that he did get arrested when, in fact, he was not arrested. For example, he said several times that he was arrested with Nelson Mandela in apartheid South Africa. Here's an example, cut 30. This day, 30 years ago, Nelson Mandela walked out of prison and entered into discussions about apartheid. I had the great honor of meeting him. I had the great honor of being arrested with our UN ambassador on the streets of Soweto trying to get to see him on Robbins Island. Now, this is the story that he told on the campaign multiple times, that he got arrested while in South Africa visiting Mandela because he was down for the cause, Joe Biden. So some fact checkers looked into it. And the Washington Post called the claim ridiculous and gave him four Pinocchios. And eventually he had to back off saying, well, what I meant was I got briefly separated. Separated is not the same word as arrested. Obviously, we all understand that. He used the word arrested for extra emphasis and power, even though it wasn't true. You can hear that entire monologue for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's free, on demand every day. You can also read my post about this in great detail at townhall.com. When we come back, there's a story about etiquette rules apparently shifting on social graces. Is there a new norm when it comes to making plans with people? I'm not sure I buy into this, even though it's a real phenomenon. We'll debate it straight ahead. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Home stretch on this Thursday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you along. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast and more. This from the Wall Street Journal caught our attention. Headline, canceling plans at the last minute is the new normal. And they have a quote right underneath the headline. You don't know if plans are really on until you get there. The story reads, calling off plans at the last minute used to be seen as rude. Now it can feel like a fixture of social life. And they talk about a 30-year-old woman who skipped her own birthday ski trip because she spiked 103 fever. And even though she tested negative for COVID, she was concerned about her health. So she didn't go. And the story says, COVID has made those prone to breaking plans feel less guilty about bailing last minute. Constant cancellations have been exacerbated by another pre-pandemic phenomenon, which is ghosting, where people just simply don't show up. And they quote an expert saying there are looser social rules. That's how people perceive it, and they think it's okay not to show up. And one example that they give is restaurant cancellations ticking up. And you've got no-shows as well. That's always been the case, but apparently the phenomenon has increased. Now, this is definitely something that is happening. I can attest to it in my own life. 
in my own experience. And as a matter of fact, on yesterday's home stretch, we were talking about the big party that Adam and I hosted at the house on Saturday. Long weekend party, barbecue, keg, long drink, all the things. And we put out an evite. We asked people to RSVP. Most people did, one way or another. And we had some people who at the last minute asked to bring more people with them, which is fine. Occasionally, you'll have people show up with guests in tow who are not invited. And I'm just not the type of person who wastes energy being upset about that. I'm kind of a more the merrier type of person. So it's like, sure, come on in. Then after the party or the next day and you're sort of in recovery mode, doing some cleaning around the house, cleaning up the backyard, and you check the evite and you realize there were some people who had said they were coming then never showed up, some of them without any explanation whatsoever. And is that a little bit annoying? I will personally say it can be because you're planning headcounts and getting the right amount of food and there's money involved and you want to be a good host and you try to plan. And I understand sometimes things are out of people's control. And I mentioned some of our friends got the date wrong. They showed up on Monday. So I'm not here to shame anyone. I just think if you RSVP to an event, especially a private party or a dinner or something that people are planning and investing in, I think if you need to change the plans at the last minute, at least do that. I think that is less frustrating than the ghosting version of this. But I will give credit where it's due. One of the ghosters this past weekend is a colleague right here at Fox News. And she addressed this on the air on Fox News Channel yesterday. She was co-hosting Outnumbered. This topic, this Wall Street Journal, was one of their talk topics toward the end of the show, I believe. And Jillian Turner graciously took the opportunity to confess what she had done and to seek forgiveness. Listen to Cut 42. While we're on the air, I would like to I would like to admit that I did this myself this weekend. I did it to our dear friend oh. Guy Benson. Guy, I am so sorry. I was supposed to go to his Memorial Day weekend barbecue, but I have a ten month old, and I think that that oh. is a legitimate excuse. That's a good excuse. Kaylee, back me up here. You have no control yes. over what these little people yeah, but... do. You have no say over your own schedule. I'm sorry to all my Amen. friends, Guy. I'm very sorry. So she's getting endorsements there in the background from Kaylee McEnany. And I said my ruling on this apology was apology accepted. It's okay. We'll allow it this time, Turner. Little tongue in cheek there. And look, there are different versions of excuses. If you have an infant and things go sideways or young kids, I understand that as a reason not to come to a social function. I also think people use that sometimes as their get-out-of-jail-free card. If they don't really want to come to something, it's like, oh, sorry, the kids were crazy. Last minute. I'm not accusing Jillian of lying about it. I just know people do that sometimes. COVID is another one, as the journal story indicates. Even if you don't have COVID, you could just say, oh, you know, I'm feeling a little under the weather just to be safe. And I, on some level, appreciate at least going through the motions of coming up with a reason 
to then back out as opposed to simply not showing up at all with no explanation. So I got a text, for example, the day before the party, Peter Ducey and his wife, Hillary, they were going to come to the party. And at the last minute, they got invited to do something out of state with his family. And they went down to Florida, I believe it was. He said, rain check. We can't wait to see you guys. Sorry that we can't come this time. We were looking forward to it. Something like that. Fine. Personally, again, speaking for myself, I prefer that. And generally, I will say I try to keep my dates or my commitments. I don't like to sign up for things or RSVP to things and then back out at the last minute just because I'm not really feeling like it or something better comes up. I'm not saying I've never done it. I'm not Mr. Perfect here. I just think these loosened social rules that we're talking about where it's suddenly not rude to at the very last minute cancel on people or not show up, I am not on board for that. I'm okay to relax things a little bit maybe. And I'm not a grudge holder and it's not something that's like, well, this person has offended me now because they didn't come to this party so they're not going to ever be invited again. I think that's petty and silly and that's not what we're about here. But I also think we might want to recalibrate this a little bit. There should be some social stigma attached to ghosting or not showing up to something that you have said and committed that you're going to be at. That is my opinion. Producer Christine, I have a hypothesis. I have a guess that you agree with me if you are the host of the event. You are a stickler for people showing up and get offended if they don't. But if the shoe is on the other foot and you're the invited party and it's not your realm. You take a much more cavalier approach and attitude toward maybe not showing up and you do that from time to time. Does that sound about right or am I wrong? Boy, do you know me well. That is spot on. Because if mm-hmm. I'm hosting something, listen, if it is like, say, you and me and Bobby and Adam had dinner plans for this Saturday, and tomorrow Adam texts and was like, hey, totally spaced on something like rain check, I'm fine. No no worries. Don't even worry about it. I'm pretty easygoing. But if I'm hosting like a dinner party and you just ghost me, we're going to have a problem. It's not. That's not nice. I don't ghost. I do cancel. I just did it today, actually, on one of Megan's play dates for Saturday. Totally forgot I was taking her to the horse track. So she can't go play with her girlfriends. We got to bet on the ponies. You're taking your daughter to go gambling. Yes, we're going to the racetrack. Okay. Interesting. Now, what would you do, just as an example, if you were throwing a party and one of your invited guests declined and then accepted, then declined, and then reaccepted, and then declined? That's a lot. Um, it would. I would have to see. You know, if it's like a if it's a medical thing, then yeah, I can get no, it. No, it's not medical. It was. It was like let's say your guest was going to go to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and then she wasn't. She was going to come, and then she couldn't figure it out with her schedule. But then she could, and she was going to bring her husband and daughter. And then never mind, she wasn't going to come. And then hypothetically, at the event, called another friend at the event, complaining that she wasn't there after all. Like, how would that sit with you? Oh, completely fine. That sounds like, you know, Uh a caring friend. Totally. (laughs) You finally figured out who I was talking about. So let me just dig down a little bit more deeply here. 
if someone cancels on you and lets you know, even if it's last minute, you're not mad about that, it's just the ghosting that bothers you, I think some last minute cancellations are also borderline unacceptable. It really would have to depend on what the cancellation is. But no, like I'm not going to get mad at my friends if they they can't make it. Um, That's just what about because here's another thing. What if someone because I've had this happen. What if someone cancels on you for some stated reason? Then they forget about the lie that they've told you. And then they're posting other stuff on their social media about what they're actually doing. That to me is a combination of infractions yes yeah i i i would probably call them out for that i'd probably say hey what happened here you know and if they just just like comment on the instagram story it's like (laughs) oh it seems that you're feeling better magically what a miracle hope to see you next time i hope to not be that passive aggressive you know i am 40 guy i have to act mature don't you think let me let me just paint a scenario you start now (sighs) Walked right into that. Let me just paint you a little scenario and then you can move on to your favorite. Why, why? Um, Say you had a son and we'll call him, I don't know, little guy. And little guy and little Megan had a play date for this Saturday. And you were hosting little Megan. And you had like lunch planned and little guy was very excited. Maybe run through the sprinklers, you know, have a whole afternoon. But then little Megan's mom, let's just say we'll call her, I don't know, Cookie. Um, Cookie calls big guy and says, hey, so sorry. Forgot I had plans to go to the racetrack. We'll we'll do this another time, okay? And then you got to break the news to little guy. Are you mad at Cookie? Uh, maybe. It also depends on how often this kind of thing happens. I assume we live close to each other as opposed to four hours away, right? That, I think, matters. And I hate to break this to you, Christine, but there's not going to be a situation where – your Megan and a hypothetical future child of mine would be like hanging out as friends. If anything, Megan might be the correct age to babysit little guy down the line. Yeah, that's true. And let's hope she doesn't right? cancel babysitting. Now, that's a no-no. If you hire a babysitter and then they cancel last Child minute, care. Yeah, that's- Child care falling through, which then forces Ooh. you to cancel, is definitely something that some of my friends have talked about and railed against. Because it can upend things that they're looking forward to. I get it's all complicated. I get that social mores and norms change. I just don't want to overcorrect or swing too much in one direction here. Because I think if you tell someone you are coming to their event or coming to their thing and they're expecting to see you and you don't come or you cancel at the very last minute or make a habit of it, I don't think that's a great reflection on you. If that sounds judgmental, maybe I'm being a little judgmental. I'm a little judgy Joyce over here today. And I think it's fair. I stand by it. You can hit me up. You can send us tweets. You can DM me if you disagree. But I've said my piece. I'm not calling anyone out. I actually would not have even thought twice about Jillian Turner, but I think it's lovely that she brought it up and very funny. I had several people send that to me. But she better come to the next one. It's the Guy Benson Show back here for the Friday edition tomorrow. We will talk to you then. Have a great night.
Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.